In this episode of Between the Lines, RDS Director of Research Peter Taylor interviews Anka Schwitty, Professor of Anthropology and Global Development at the University of Sussex. Anka is author of the book Creative Universities, Reimagining Education for Global Challenges and Alternative Futures. In the book and podcast, she argues that in order to inspire and equip students to generate better responses to global challenges, we need a pedagogy that develops their imagination, creativity, emotional sensibilities, and practical capabilities. Presenting concrete ideas for the reimagination of higher education, this book is an essential read for both educators and students in any field studying global challenges. So hello, and welcome to another edition of the IDS podcast series, Between the Lines. And this is where we have the chance to discuss at first hand with the author of a publication that we feel is really contributing to our efforts in transforming knowledge and transforming lives. I'm Peter Taylor, I'm Director of Research at the Institute of Development Studies, and I'm really delighted today to have this conversation with Professor Anka Schwede on her recently published book, Creative Universities, Reimagining Education for Global Challenges and Alternative Futures, published by Bristol University Press. Uh, Anka is Professor of Anthropology and Global Development at the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex, where she's also co-convener of the MA Media Practice for Social Change and Development. She obtained her PhD in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley, and she also taught at the School for Information and Department of Anthropology. She was at the Center for Development Studies at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and joined the Sussex University School of Global Studies in 2014. She's also co-founder and former research director of the Rios Institute, a Silicon Valley-based organization, and has undertaken extensive consultancy and advisory work. So a varied and really fascinating career with different kinds of experience over time. I'm particularly excited about this conversation with Anka today, partly because it's another opportunity to share publicly the strong partnership between IDS and the University of Sussex. And just blowing our collective trumpets for a moment, it's worth mentioning that IDS and the University of Sussex have again been ranked number one for development studies in the QS world rankings. But it's also exciting because Anka's work research and indeed this publication connect really strongly to some of my own research interests around learning change and transformation. So it's a delight to be able to host Anka today on this Between the Lines podcast. And thank you, Anka, for your willingness to participate. I think we both share the view that universities are hugely important institutions and they're influential actors nationally, regionally, and internationally. And also as we've been discussing in our recent series of Sussex Development Lectures, on the theme of development in an uncertain world. We live in very turbulent, dynamic and unpredictable times with many shared universal challenges. So clearly universities have an important role to play. A key aspect of that role is through education as well as research, through the curriculum, through learning and teaching, through pedagogy. But perhaps the pathway that universities need to take for the future are still emerging and evolving. And it raises many questions for how they design and deliver and indeed, as the title of your book suggests, reimagine their educative programs. So, Anka, why did you write this book? And what, or perhaps who, was its main inspiration? Well, first of all, thank you, Peter, for having me. I'm really delighted to talk to you today. Why did I write this book? Um, as she said, I've been teaching in um, international development for close to 20 years now in the US, in New Zealand, and in the UK, um, in departments that have a really critical 
um, a necessarily critical, critical approach to international development in terms of showing students that it's a really complex, contradictory endeavor. It has colonial legacies. It has limitations. It often fails. And um, I feel it's this, this critical perspective is really important and students appreciate that because they often feel they're coming into the program with maybe kind of naive or very idealistic assumptions about, you know, studying development and then being able to, you know, um, abolish poverty or, or, or save the world. Um, so this is on the one hand. On the other hand, there's always a second reaction. And that is students um, frequently talking about feeling quite disillusioned, quite cynical, and indeed becoming a bit hopeless about the, the desire and the aspirations that brought them to studying development in the first place. I'm saying, you know, I understand why I need to have all this critical knowledge, but what I don't know is what to do with this knowledge. Where do I take these insights and what do they mean for me as somebody who really, you know, wants to do good in the world? And that's something that me and, and my colleagues at different institutions have experienced over the years. So for me, that really was the impetus to think about what can I do in my own teaching as an engaged educator who cares about her students um, to help students move beyond this impasse. Um, and this is where, um, you know, I've been experimenting in my own classrooms for a number of years. But then about um, five years ago, I decided to do some really kind of concentrated research um, on this at the University of Sussex and really looking at the teaching that takes place in the ID department um, to answer these questions kind of more, um, you know, in a more holistic, um, in, in a more systematic way. And the result of this is, as she said, is the book which was published late last year, which um, is, 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 a, is a combination of kind of theoretical insights, but also some really quite practical um, um, ideas and, and descriptions of how I have been trying to answer these questions and how, how my colleagues have been trying to answer these questions in our classrooms. Great. I mean, it's fascinating that it's coming from such a source of personal inquiry and reflection. And that's obviously infused the book, um, which is which is a really interesting approach. So who do you have in mind as an audience for this book? And who do you hope will will read it and engage with it? Yeah, so I very much set out to write a book for fellow educators. That was my uh, my my inspiration. That was kind of what what kind of you know shaped the, uh, um, the, the the language of the book, the tone of the book. Um, not in the sense of telling people this is what you need to do, and this is here is the uh, the, the perfect toolkit. Here's the perfect recipe for how you can, um, you know, kind of change your teaching. And maybe I should backtrack a little bit and say at the heart of the book is this idea of a critical creative pedagogy that combines critique and, and, and creativity. And there is kind of, you know, there's an explanation of what this looks like. And then as I said, lots of examples, which I really present as a series of invitations for fellow educators who read this to experiment in their own classrooms. These are all activities that are, that are doable, that are often have already been done by myself or by my colleagues. So educators very much a, um, the primary audience, but then when the, the reviewers of the proposal, uh, you know, sent me their feedback, it was also um, students, you <laughs> know, what about students? And I'm like, of course. And I was really lucky to publish with Bristol because uh, the paperback and the e-copy are um, 
I think, quite affordable. So it also became um, important uh, uh, to me to write it in a, in a way that it would be engaging for students. And I know students have read it and have given it very good feedback. So, so educators and students, I think, as the, the, the main audiences. Right. Well, I'm sure it's, it's going to have a wide reach. You mentioned critical creative pedagogy as the heart of it. Can you say a bit more about the main arguments of the book? You know, what, what's the message that you're really bringing through this book? Yes, yes, absolutely. So critical creative pedagogy for me was, was the result that came out of, as I said, thinking of my own teaching approach in a bit more of a systematic way. And I've, in this pedagogy, I've tried to um, uh, bring together uh, four different strands that I see as really important to combine critical and creative teaching with the aim to help students better understand global challenges and the complexity of global challenges, social, economic, and ecological challenges, but also then um, imagine alternative responses to these challenges. And by alternative responses, it's a very deliberate language. I don't talk about solutions because I think a, a, a search for solutions is often misguided. Um, and by alternative, I mean non-mainstream responses. So there's a lot of ideas about kind of heterodox, um, kind of alternative ways of thinking about these challenges. Kind of coming back to critical creative pedagogy, there are four components to it. And I'm just briefly gonna go through them. The first one is, is whole person learning. And that really speaks for me to the foundational insights that when our students come into our classrooms, they are, you know, they, intellectually engaged, but they also, there are people with, with bodies, with emotions, with senses. And ideally we try and engage all of that in the classroom or we try and create an atmosphere where, where people feel comfortable bringing their whole person into the classroom. And for me, that relates really um, crucially to validating students' experiential knowledge and saying to students, your own, you know, experience of being in the world, your, your own, the knowledge you draw from who you are and how you engage with others, how you engage with your, you know, your environment, is really important. And I want you to bring this to the classroom because I think there's a lot of value and I can learn from you and, and, and you know, you can learn from each other through this. The second um, strand is the use of design and arts methods. And that relates quite, um, you know, practically to, to creativity. Um, I've had a long-standing interest in the use of design methods for development. I've published on that. And then when it came to thinking about creative teaching, I was thinking, what can design offer to, um, you know, development classrooms? And for me, these are things like concepts, such as um, wicked problems, which I think is a really productive way to think about complex challenges. I design thinking as a methodology that is quite open-ended, that is iterative, that is experimental. The ability to empathize, which I think is really, really important, but also just a, a, a very kind of open approach where students are uh, comfortable with ambiguity because we live in a world that doesn't have easy solutions and that are okay um, asking open-ended questions that have, you know, no easy answers or sometimes no answers at all and being able to sit in that space of of ambiguity rather than you know wanting to have the answer or rushing to solution so i often say to my students just suspend your disbelief for a little bit longer hold open that space 
And I think this sign is really good with that. Um, it's also both design and arts remind us of the materiality of teaching. So, you know, the importance of space, but also the importance of just, you know, moving beyond the text, moving beyond the page, moving beyond the screen to, you know, engaging students' hands uh, through materials, um, engaging students' senses through teaching outside. So that's the design and arts um, strand. The third one is um, the idea of praxis, very much inspired by Paolo Freire's idea of practice that is informed by theory, um, reflection, and debate. And I see this as particularly relevant for international development students because of the aforementioned um, kind of idealism of you know, wanting to do something. You know, we, wanna, we wanna do something about making the world a better place. But I think it's really important that students critically think about what they want to do, why they want to do it, and how they want to go about it. Um, so Freire gives us lots of ideas of how this, 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 this praxis can be implemented. But for me, this also speaks of the importance of you know, applied teaching, problem-focused teaching. I think of it as learning by doing and learning by doing together. So really often I have lots of activities where I you know, teach a particular concept and then I ask students to apply that concept to um, a particular situation. And maybe we have some time to talk about examples um, in a little bit. And then all of this really informs the fourth strand, which is critical hope. And this really comes back to my original idea or original kind of inspiration for this, for this project in this book about allowing students to remain hopeful throughout their studies, but not naive, not in a fantasy kind of wishful thinking kind of way, not in a, in a, in a savior kind of way, but in a critical way that is, you know, reparative, looking backwards and addressing injustices that is very much engaging with the challenges of the present, but that also is forward-looking and saying, what can we do with our knowledge to address the challenges that do exist? So whole person learning, design and arts methods, um, praxis and critical hope, that's, that's the, uh, um, the four elements of critical creative pedagogy. And the book is really structured around that. Yeah, thanks, Anka. I mean, it's, it's so interesting thinking about education in that context. Um, I was actually having a conversation with someone else earlier about it today and we were thinking about you know how education is defined. It's often still defined as a sort of transfer of knowledge you know from one person to another. But what you're describing is actually something which is which is very different. It's very much about the experience, you know the learners learning together, bringing their experience, having that experience valued um, and you know the kind of environment in which you you create space for people to come together in that way and and I saw a rather nice another definition of learning with of education which I quite liked which is an enlightening experience and it strikes me that a lot of what you're describing is is really that it's experiential but it's also illuminating it's empowering it's uh, it's providing space for voices and experience to to come out and to be shared which uh, you know I think is is so important in such an uncertain, turbulent and dynamic world that we, we all live in at the moment. Can you say a little bit more about perhaps some of the methods, um, you know, just some examples perhaps of some of the methods that you illustrate in the book? Because I think that's going to be really interesting for many listening to this podcast. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We'd love to share some of my examples. So I'm really fortunate that I'm able to teach um, two modules at Sussex that come out of my own kind of research and interests. And, and both of them have elements of critical creative pedagogy. And the first one is the specialist module in urban futures, um, third year um, undergraduate students. And um, uh, the Sussex campus is located very close to Brighton. And that is a fantastic opportunity, again, for me to challenge students to apply they are learning about, you know, rights to the city, informality, um, socio-technical assemblages of infrastructures, all the necessary theoretical concepts that they are learning about, how that plays out in the case of Brighton, but also how then they could start thinking about, well, how do we make Brighton more equitable? Because Brighton is not a perfect city. There are lots of issues that the students often experience themselves. So, one thing is, you know, applying the learning to Brighton, which in their third year, most students have lived there for two years. And just to give a, a more specific example, I start the class off with asking students to keep um, a Brighton diary for a week. Okay, for a week, they become very um, aware and kind of write down where they're going, who are they interacting with, how do they feel about particular spaces. So really, how are you as a Brighton resident? And then they bring that knowledge. So it's, it's a form of knowledge creation. They bring that knowledge into the classroom. Um, they either can you know, build an, an, an object or often they take pictures or they write a small piece of creative writing. And it was really interesting um, uh, during COVID when we moved online, all of this was happening um, on, on a Padlet, which actually turned out to be really good. And I've actually kept the Padlet because students were more comfortable sharing it. But during COVID, I also realized that I really needed to acknowledge what students had lost in their engagement with Brighton. Um, so really the, the, the emotional effects of lockdown and the pandemic and making the space for students to bring that into the classroom. And then on the basis of, you know, kind of their lives as Brighton residents, we write a collective Brighton manifesto, thinking about how to make Brighton more equitable and sustainable. We build um, scenarios where I bring in lots of materials and I ask the students, you know, Brighton 2050, what would you like it to be like? And um, and then they build for three hours. Um, and actually, I'm also now introducing an element where I actually want them to think about particular parts of Brighton and reimagining that in, in more in more quite specific ways, like actually going out into Brighton. So that's one example. The other one is a, a master's level course on activism for social change and development, where part of the module, or half of the module, students work in groups and design their own activism campaigns. Um, on a topic that they choose. Again, it's very much learning by doing, and it's very much using you know, all the theoretical learning about, um, about activism together with a number of, of, of tools I'm giving them to, to design campaigns to saying, if we want to do something about this particular challenge, how would we start going about that? What are the questions we need to ask? Who are the people and organizations we need to engage? So again, quite, quite practical considerations, but always in the context of, you know, kind of critical theoretical knowledge. So these are just a couple of examples. You are listening to the Between the Lines podcast from the Institute of Development Studies. So the book clearly places learning in a central position as the core focus. What did you learn in writing the book? 
Is there anything that surprised you? Yes, yes. So um, perhaps not surprisingly, um, COVID was a massive surprise. And maybe just giving some context here, I, uh, I actually did the research and conceived of the book when, when I was head of department because I was thinking a lot about you know, teaching anyway and it seemed a good time. And then I had a sabbatical and I thought, oh, I'm going to be writing this book. I'm going to you know, interact with colleagues and have writing groups. And then COVID happened and I went into the first lockdown and I sat by myself uh, at home writing about global challenges. And here was COVID as an, an immense challenge, which I couldn't speak to because it's completely outside of my area of expertise. But then the other thing was um, all of this was initially very much based on face-to-face -face teaching. That's what I've been doing. That's what I love. That's what I still believe is the best way to engage students. And all of a sudden, there was no more face-to-face -face teaching. And there wasn't any certainty about, well, will we ever go back to face-to-face -to -face teaching? And that was surprising in a not so good way, because it made me question my entire project for <laughs> the first, when I was just supposed to really get into it. I'm like, what am I doing? Is this still relevant? And together with my editor, I worked through this, but as a result, I've actually paid more attention to the potential of technology, um, as I mentioned, you know, padlets and stuff to uh, to support some of these initiatives. So that was um, a surprising thing in the sense of it wasn't planned for, expected at all, but something I definitely um, had to engage with in the in the writing process. Yeah, no, great, and and I imagine as you immersed yourself in some of, sort of the core issues and continued reflecting on your experience, perhaps it took you into some territory that was less familiar, you know, than perhaps you had, you had really sort of engaged with perhaps, perhaps so deeply before. I mean, were there particular areas there that, you know, you felt, wow, that's something I, I, I really didn't quite expect to take away so much from it? Yes. And it actually links really closely to the IDS lecture I gave, you know, a couple of months ago. Is I really felt I needed to have a chapter on ecological challenges. You know, you can't write about global challenges without talking about, you know, um, climate, the climate urgency, um, ecology. And as I start, and it's it's again, it's quite outside my area of expertise. So I did a lot of reading. And um, I'm part of the research I should have said was actually also in took place in Bolivia. I'm a Latin Americanist by training. I've had done research in Latin America, um, you know, over a number of years. And looking for alternatives, I also really wanted to understand what does this mean in the global south, in a particular location. So I went to La Paz and interviewed colleagues at a number of universities, and I was aware of. Um, you know, alternative epistemologies such as Buen Vivir, which is an indigenous um, worldview of, around kind of an ecological and alternative ecological understanding and the role of humans in the world. But the other thing I realized, and that really took me far away, was I needed to learn about systems and complexity thinking, which, <laughs> um, you know, not really kind of known about. I mean, I knew what it was, but uh, so I thought I again, from reading and from seeing what other people said, I said, everybody should have a basic understanding of systems and complexity thinking. Our students need it, but we often can't give it because we don't have it. So I started reading, like, reading people like Fridjof Capra and Donella Meadows, like really introductory stuff, which is 
you know, my level of understanding. But um, super interesting and, and really reinforced my belief that it's, it's important to, you know, when we under, look, talk about ecological challenges, to have that systems view, to, to understand, you know, how feedback loops work, how tipping points work, how um, kind of some of these, yeah, these, uh, these terms and these processes. So that, um, you know, took me quite far afield. It was a real kind of learning journey. I hope I've done it justice um, in the book. And ultimately for myself, it was a real kind of eye opener discovering that, that aspect. Of, um, of kind of ecological teaching. Great. I mean, you, you mentioned there, um, Anka, that there were some challenges as you were writing it. You know, it was in the middle of a pandemic, um, just ways of working, ways of interacting were all being disrupted. And, uh, you know, you obviously had to adapt to that. And, uh, you know, congratulations for, for working through it and coming out with the, the book at the end. Um, and we know that writing a book can be challenging, of course, uh, which is, I think, one of the interesting things about this podcast series is that that's often a source of reflection, actually, on what it's like to write, you know, to write and to, to bring a book uh, in, into fruition. But, I mean, what, what were the joys that you took from this? What did you feel was the most enjoyable part of the process of writing this book? Yes. Um, I mean, I generally like writing. It was my second, it's my second book. So I had written a book before. Um, a joy, but also at the same time, a source of anxiety was that it was, it's a really personal book um, for, for a number of reasons. We often, as you know, I'm not an education person by background. I'm an anthropologist teaching international development. We don't really write about our teaching, right? We teach, we all teach. And it's a really important part of what we do, what we think about, an important part of our identity as educators often. But we have very little time and space to write about teaching. And as I said, for me, it came out actually of an admin job, which is perhaps a bit ironic, but it gave me that space because I couldn't do my other research projects because I couldn't travel and, and other things. So um, it was an absolute joy to have time to think about and write about my teaching. Um, but it was also a source of anxiety because it did and as you said before, it's, it's quite a personal book because I'm writing it from my own practice. I'm writing it from my own kind of concerns and, and discomforts. Um, um, so it took, some, it took some courage and I, you know, overcame these anxieties with the help of really fantastic and supportive colleagues at, at Sussex who kept telling me how important this is and how, um, you know, how, um, yeah, how important it is to, to, um, to do this work and, and, and to put this work out there. And there's actually a number of us in the department now who are having kind of spin-off projects related to, to teaching. Um, but still, it's, um, it's not easy. And then I think, I think the other thing is, as I said before, I didn't want to write a book where I wanted to tell other educators, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to change. And so having, you know, having, having an agenda and saying, it, it's good to make our teaching more creative, while at the same time being aware that there is a certain normative agenda here and being, being quite, quite honest about that. But because it's really important to me, again, it was quite, um, you know, there was, there was joy in articulating that and making, and making the case for that. 
So um, yeah, I, I, I did enjoy it. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad the book exists. I've had some fantastic emails from people who've kind of discovered it and said, oh my God, especially the one thing that seems to resonate is this idea of critical hope which just speaks to a lot of people teaching in development and beyond and saying, um, you know, I've had similar experiences with students um, or I know how important it is to, um, you know, to, 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 to kind of encourage students to be hopeful. And it actually, for me, one of the very early on when I did my research, I came across a book by somebody called Ruth Barkhan, who teaches cultural um, studies in Australia. And she said, you know, when our students tell us that our teaching really affects their identity and really has them ask some really existential questions that are often really difficult, she said, you know, the common response is either, well, tough luck, that's part of the, the, the university journey, or, well, I've gone through this and survived, so you should you, or some people just completely ignore it. And she said, we have to do better. <laughs> and I so much agreed with this statement that for me it was like, Okay, you know how 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 do we do better? And so, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's um, it's a really interesting observation about that experience of what actually happens through the, the pedagogical process. And you know, again, moving away from that sort of technical idea of the educator as a as a you know a transmitter of knowledge, and, and actually trying to you know through emotional empathetical connections to actually engage with what learners are experiencing is it, it's, it's so important but it's also really challenging I, I guess that's why uh, Maya Angelou said people remember not what you say but how you made them feel um, that's you know something that educators I think I, I think don't always um, have front of mind because a lot of education is still about talking it's about mm -hmm. you know use of words using that to convey kinds of knowledge to people who you know, may be perceived as, as lacking that. But what you're describing is, is very, very different. Yeah, I still talk too much in my classes, you know <laughs> what I mean? But I try and, yeah, I try and bring in oh, yeah, other ways of teaching as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean it, it, it's great. And it certainly resonates with, uh, you know, many experiences at IDS, we have a, a master's in uh, participation and social change. And I think that was one of the reasons why you know, when I heard your lecture, uh, I, it, it struck me how interesting it was um, that there was work also going on at Sussex that was drawing on the experience of, of learning and teaching and yet bringing that out to a wider audience and reflecting on it. So, I, you know, you mentioned already that you've had positive reactions to the book, um, you know, positive emails and so on. Can you say a bit more about the, what sort of responses you found that the book has, has provoked? And, um, you know, how, how is it? yeah how, how are people relating to it yeah so i think uh, um kind of a couple of different ways i since the book came out at the i think in october it was i've i've given lots and lots of talks i really wanted to kind of you know publicize and promote this book um and lots of them have been on zoom and that's actually been okay because it had a, a wider audience that maybe people would have been able to come to Sussex or to Brighton, for example. So also an international region, I've participated in, um, in kind of conferences and giving presentations. So in that context, just you know, giving talks and then getting, getting questions and reactions, um, um, 
I, uh, it, it, it's been positive. But also interesting questions. Um, one of the things I very much situated within the social sciences, because that's where my expertise lies, and I felt it's important to stay on my ground and to write from you know, what I know about. And then people in the life sciences or people in mathematics asking me, how would, that, how would you see that working um, you know, in, in other fields and other disciplines? Um, so that's been a challenge, but also a kind of yeah, an interesting challenge because I have started to think a little bit and made some connections with, with, with non-social scientists um, about how to maybe take this, this pedagogy into other disciplines. Um, so, so the talks um, and conferences um, have been have been really good, and then um, and then just just emails from people who who kind of come across the book and, and are usually saying hey, they really kind of appreciate the honesty that that comes through. And I think especially the introduction to the book, which really kind of describes my journey of writing it and why I'm writing it. It starts off very personal, um, and then saying. Um, yeah, you know, what you say about um, students' feelings and, and, and critical hope is really resonating. And um, it's fantastic to have, um, you know, to also have quite, quite practical ideas of what can be done about it. And I know one of the reviewers, um, he's, he said, this, this book is full of practical optimism. And that's the other thing, actually. A lot of people are saying this is such a positive book. And it's, you know, you asked me before a little bit about what was, it was, it, it was really nice to write a positive book. It is a positive book, but again, there's also some anxiety about, you know, how can I write a positive book when the world is full of challenges and problems and, 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 um, and maybe I should talk a little bit, I don't know if you have time about some of the, uh, the, the theorists who have influenced me because um, I've drawn a lot on the work of J.K. Gibson Graham, who are kind of critical, um, a geographers who um, now for, for, for many, many years uh, have, this, have developed this project on kind of a post-capitalist um, economy, but also diverse economy, uh, which is really about building econ economic alternatives. But they've also written a lot of um, how we can, as academics, become what they call subjects of academic possibilities. And they've learned a lot about how we can you know, contribute to, to, to nurturing experiments and providing a space in our teaching and in our research for alternatives to emerge. And part of that is to suspend your criticism for a while or to practice what they call a, a, a form of weak theory. I call it a generative theory where, you know, if you, if you analyze everything out of existence because it's tainted by neoliberalism or capitalism from the get-go, you are never going to be able to encourage or to make a space where alternatives can, can, can germinate or grow. And I think discovering their writings, again, very early on in my project has been fantastic because that's kind of been my guiding light whenever I feel like, oh, I'm not critical enough. I go back to their work and I'm saying, that's okay. That's okay. And I think the other person um, who's really shape my thinking about um, alternatives is Arturo Escobar's work on alternatives, Latin America, um, but also design, design, design for the pluriverse. So I just wanted to bring, uh, bring in a little bit of theory here. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's great, Anka, because I think people are, are always interested to know, you know, what's been your, your influences, both experientially, but also theoretical and practically. Uh, so I think that's, that's really good. And your emphasis on hope, I think, is, is really commendable. Um, you know, we've actually, as IDS, we've often referred to Jonathan Sachs' um, perspective on the politics of hope and that idea that, you know, through different kinds of engagement and bringing different actors and voices, and experience together, you can navigate a way towards a more hopeful future, but it requires intent and considerable effort. And uh, I think pedagogy is one of those essential ingredients because it also has such a powerful impact on the lives of so many people for, for their future and their ability to, to move forward. So thinking of future, um, what comes next for you? Uh, you know, what are your plans? for taking this work forward or indeed for other related areas of work? Yeah, so um, so the book came out late last year and uh, um, I've actually kind of, or I'm trying to build a, a, a bit of a larger project around it. So it's not just a standalone book. So I've um, um, built a website called, you know, creativeuniversities.com, which has, you know, obviously links to the book um, and some reviews, which are, should be coming out over the summer. Um, but it also has um, resources, a resource section where I'm pulling out some of the activities I describe and provide, um, you know, um, teaching guides and templates and this and that. It has, I have a blog where I kind of regularly um, keep writing about my teaching experiences. Um, I also have a section called Teach Talk, where I'm actually interviewing kind of critical creative educators. Um, these are kind of short 15 minute interviews um, and just kind of to, to bring in, to bring in, you know, kind of other perspectives. Um, and that's been a real joy as well, just talking to like-minded educators. Um, so that's on, on the website as well. Um, so that's one thing that is, is ongoing and I'm, I'm continuously engaging with. Um, the other thing which, you know, you're part of is a, a small spin-off project, which really has come out of, um, um, you know, some of my teaching activities I talk about in the book, uh, taking place on Sussex campus, which made me think about what if we took the idea of university campuses as teaching spaces beyond the extra classroom, more serious, and what, what if we thought about the physical, the ecological, the human infrastructure um, of university campuses as, you know, as, as resources for teaching. Uh, so we are, we are forming a, a network of like-minded educators um, at, at Sussex and it, it's great that you're, you're part of that. And, uh, um, and we just yesterday had a, had a presentation on that and I hope this will, you know, kind of um, emerge and, and grow into something, um, um, a, um, yeah, a, um, um, you know, a spin-off project. Um, and then I think the other thing that I'm really thinking about is, I mentioned um, a module in activism that I'm teaching. And I think this is something I would like to develop more and hopefully do some co-writing with some of the students who have taken this module um, because we just finished this year's teaching and there've been some really interesting projects. And then last but not least, a bit further off, but um, one of the students I interviewed, I didn't really talk about the methodology of the book. I don't know if you have time for that. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just for, a, for a moment anyway, we can just- Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. So I, I conducted um, semi-structured interviews with about 30 students. I call them journey interviews because I 
interviewed them at the end of their ID degree at Sussex, mostly undergraduate students, um, and reflected, had them reflect on their teaching. I, I interviewed staff. I had lots and lots of informal conversations. I did a kind of a systematic review of all of our teaching programs. I did observations in some of my um, colleagues' classes. And then, as I said, my own, my own classrooms were very experimental spaces. But one of the students I interviewed, she was part of um, establishing the, the, the first Sussex University uh, student housing cooperative, which is actually the first student housing cooperative in the southeast of the UK. And through her, I've been connected with the students who are the co-op, they bought a house and it's up and running now. And I'm actually uh, developing a project. Uh, for me, this is an extension because it is students taking um, you know, taking knowledge, but also taking issues around rent, um, you know, <laughs> which is a really precarious situation for many students in Brighton. And having set up this cooperative. So that's another spin-off project, a bit further removed, but there's definitely a connection to, um, to, to, to creative teaching um, and, and teaching that's engaged in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's great that we were able just to gather a little bit about the methods that you use there and it does strike me you know when you just describe the the sort of array of things that you're doing and things that you're hoping to do in the future and already are doing in fact I mean it's almost a kind of bricolage because it's drawing on interestingly different aspects of your own experience and skill sets as well you know whether it's um, creating a website or it's bringing people together and interviewing them and drawing on more experiences and making those available in practical ways whilst also supporting new initiatives, you know, and additional initiatives with, uh, whether it's with students or others on, uh, you know, on the campus, others in the community. So I, I think it's, it's a really exciting trajectory and it's going to be fascinating to see where it goes. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, even in a small way to be, to be part of that, that journey as well. It's, it's extremely exciting, as has been this conversation. Personally, I found it really inspiring the book is clearly going to be an important resource, already is. Uh, it's going to be a reference point for ideas and practice for an ever-growing community of educators, uh, researchers, decision makers, and students with interests in reimagining ed education, which is what you've put in the title. So I think the most important thing is to say congratulations on the book, going through all those trials and tribulations, but drawing on this amazing set of experience, um, engagement with so many uh, who've contributed to it clearly. I hope many will read it and I'm really looking forward to conversations continuing on the subject here at Sussex. I know they'll continue more widely and also you know to wish you all success in further research and writing and other related activities in the future. So um, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, the Between the Lines podcast. Thank you Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.